Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension. This is Naked Astronomy. Hello and welcome to Naked Astronomy with me, Ben Valsler, and with Dominic Fort. Hello. In this month's show, we're joined by Jonathan Franklin, Director of the Comet Sections of the British Astronomical Association and the Society for Popular Astronomy. We'll be picking his brains on the topic of comets, and in particular, Comet 2011 L4 Panstars, which is hoped to be visible to the naked eye over the coming month. And we'll be hearing about the origins of cosmic rays, the close flyby of asteroid 2012 DA14, and the fireball that exploded over a Russian town. We'll also be answering your space science questions. So if there's anything you would like to know, please get in touch. You can email astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. You can find The Naked Scientists on Facebook or tweet at Naked Scientists. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. First, Comet 2011 L4 Panstars, colloquially known just as Panstars after the telescope that discovered it, is hoped to be visible to the naked eye in March 2013. And to find out more about that and comets in general, we're joined by Jonathan Franklin, who is director of the comet sections of the BAA and the SPA. Jonathan may be better known to naked scientist listeners as one of the men who discovered the hole in the ozone layer, one of the many achievements during his career at the British Antarctic Survey. But John, where did your interest in comets start? It was many years ago now, when I was just about to come up to Cambridge as an undergraduate, and there was this comet called Comet Kohutek that was expected by many to become the brightest object in the sky, visible in broad daylight and all sorts of things like that. In the end, it was quite a nice comet with a short tail, and that really hooked me on trying to follow them ever since. I have seen some brighter ones than Kahootek, but it's a word of warning for what might be seen in November when another bright comet is predicted to grace our skies. So where do these comets that turn up in the inner solar system come from? They really come from the fringes of our own solar system. They're the leftovers of the building blocks of, the, of our solar system. They probably all originally formed somewhere between Jupiter and Uranus in that band of the, the solar system when the positions of the planet were very different to what they are today. And as Jupiter accreted matter, the orbits expanded a bit, there was a lot of chaos, and some of these lumps got flung out towards the end edge of the solar system. And they've been in deep freeze, if you like, ever since. And then passing stars or clumps of 
interstellar matter perturb their orbits ever so slightly and they start a long fall in towards the sun. And some of them, by no means all of them, get very close to the sun. And if they get close enough, the ice begins to evaporate. It takes away dust as well. And the comet, which up to then was just a lump of icy material, begins to grow, first of all, a coma and then a tail. When we think of comets, what we think of is a bright sword-like object hanging in the sky above a town. They're not all like that, but hopefully at least one of the two that we are due to get this year will be a little bit like that. Now, there were these rocky fragments left over in the solar system that didn't form into planets. Some of them are called asteroids and some of them are called comets. We've actually had a question come in from a listener, Fred Chambers, who wants to know what asteroids are made of and, and perhaps how that controls to what comets are made of. There's actually a whole gradation from asteroids through to comets. And sometimes you can have a comet that turns into an asteroid or vice versa. So that tells us from the start that they have similar things in them. And essentially an asteroid, it's virtually all silicate-type material. So that's the familiar rocks, if you like, that we know from mountain ranges on our planet. Quite often covered in a fine coating of pulverised material and quite often not a solid object for an asteroid. Certainly the smaller ones can be lots of smaller lumps just stuck together. And sometimes you can get quite a big object, say 10 kilometres or more across. And the largest of asteroids, of course, getting on for 1,000 kilometres across, those are sufficiently big. They are approximately round because of self-gravity. And they're probably going to have melted in the inner interior. Now, a comet is quite different. Mostly they're small. Virtually all are probably less than 100 kilometres across. And the majority are probably 1 to 10 kilometres across. And they have a lot more ice in them. Now, ice isn't the same sort of thing that you get in your gin and tonic. What we're talking about in the astronomical sense of ices are things like ammonia, methane, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, some water, but all mixed together, um, not as a slush, but as a dry powder. Because when that sort of material is very, very cold, it's not like the wet snow that we get in Cambridge. So it's a, a fine powder. It's mixed in with rocky material as well. And in fact, the spacecraft images suggest that quite a lot of a comet is actually this rocky material. And there's only small areas on the surface that are actually losing their ices. So if you like, a comet is an object that has geology actively happening on its surface, whereas an asteroid is largely um, a dead object that the geology takes place over millions of years. Given that all of these objects formed out of the same disk of material orbiting around the Sun in the early solar system, how did they end up with such different compositions? It depends very much on exactly where they formed. So the asteroids generally formed closer to the Sun, where it was a bit hotter and the ices couldn't condense, and the comets generally formed a bit further away, beyond the snow line. So in the early solar system there was a snow line, which is where you got the ices condensing, beyond that. 
inside it, it was too hot. We've sort of already touched on this, but David Gould on Twitter asked us where the ice and water actually comes from that makes up the comet. You seem to have hinted that actually it's the protoplanetary disk. It's the same stuff yes. that makes the planets. Yeah, we need to go back a long way, really, to the, the first protostars at the sort of dawn of the universe, which started manufacturing the heavier elements beyond hydrogen. And after they blew up, that manufactured eventually a protosolar nebula, and that started collapsing under the influence of gravity. And that protosolar nebula had lots of hydrogen in it, because most of that's in the sun. Equally, it quite clearly had smaller amounts of other substances, because we're living on a rocky planet. Some of that material went into the, the comets and the asteroids as well, as a sort of leftovers of the solar system. Now, we've actually had a question here from Les Curiata, who wants to know, did comets bring the water that we have on the Earth into our oceans? The current theories um, suggest very much that the early Earth would have been far too hot to keep all its water. So while it started off with some, it probably lost it. So that then raises the question, well, we've got quite big oceans on our planet. We're very much the blue planet. Where did that water come from? And one likely possibility is it was some quite large comets crashing into the, the Earth, probably between four and a half and three and a half billion years ago. And they brought in a lot of the water that we can see today. What we do know is that the, the isotope ratio in the water of our oceans is broadly similar to the solar isotope ratio. So it must be from our solar system, not from somebody else's solar system. Les goes on to wonder how many bombardments that would have taken. Do you have any idea? Ooh, now, <laughs> it depends a bit on the size of the, the objects that came in, their speed and their overall composition. And I don't think I'd really like to guess off the top of my head um, exactly how many impacts um, it might be. But if you assume that your average comet is, say, let's do nice round sums, 10 cubic kilometres, then work out how many cubic kilometres of ocean we've got, I think it works out to quite a lot of impacts. It's not an insignificant number, yeah. is it? I mean, it, how can we actually find out? Presumably it's not like where we have these massive meteorite impacts and we have craters. Presumably if we're looking for the comets that supplied the water very, very early in Earth's evolution, the, the evidence won't be left. No, the, the, the geology on our surface, uh, the surface of our planet, has erased virtually all the traces of what went on in the early times. What we can see, though, is the moon, and we know that there are some fairly big impacts on there. So we can do the sort of sums and work out if the moon's got lots. We've had even more because the Earth is bigger. Uh, and you can get some idea of the cratering rates through time. To an extent, it depends on your preferences as to whether cratering rates slowly declined or whether there was a big peak called the late heavy bombardment, which is a sort of final rejuggling of the blocks of the solar system as Jupiter and Uranus and Neptune move to their present positions. I think the, the modelers of the solar system 
are increasingly getting a better idea of exactly how that process took place. And I think it won't be too far in the future before we can do the simulations with not just a few particles or comets in the, in the, in the computer model, but literally millions and find out exactly where they all did go to and how many are actually in storage on the fringes of our solar system in the Oort cloud and indeed how many were expelled completely from our solar system and are now wandering the space between the stars. And it's something quite remarkable that to date no conclusively proven object has come from outside our solar system. All the comets that we've seen probably belong to our own solar system. But theory says there must be some out there that aren't, and it will be fascinating to see how they differ if one should be discovered. Do we have any rough idea of just how many objects there are out there? In the Oort cloud, yes. it is millions and millions of them. But altogether, if you added up the mass, um, it would be an object smaller than the Earth. Now, when these objects come into the solar system, what makes a good comet for an amateur astronomer? What makes it bright in the night sky? There's two key things. One is it needs to come close to the Earth, and the other is it needs to come close to the Sun. So you can have a small comet that gets close to the Sun or close to the Earth, and it can be a spectacular object. Or you can have a very big comet some way away from both, and an example of one of those was Comet Hale-Bopp that was around 15, 20 years ago now. But that was a very bright object. It was visible for a long period of time, so everybody got a good chance to see it. By contrast, at about the same time, there was a, a comet discovered by a Japanese amateur called Yakutaki. That was only visible for a very short period of time, but it came very close to the Earth. And it became one of the brighter objects of the night sky, had a tail covering half the sky because it was so close. So perspective plays a part as well. And of the two comets that we've got this year, one gets moderately close to both the, the Sun and the Earth, and that's this comet Pan-STARRS. But there's one due in November, at the end of November, early December, that actually skirts the surface of the Sun. And because it gets so close, it could be very bright indeed. And the devil is in the detail. At the moment, it's still a long way from the sun. We don't really know how quickly it's brightening because there haven't been enough observations yet. But we can make predictions on the basis of what similar comets have done in the past. And it seems highly likely that it will get at least brighter than the planet Venus and possibly um, nearly as bright as the moon. Now, you might think, well, that's going to be ever so easy to see. But at that time, it's only going to be about a degree from the sun. And you should never look close to the sun in the daytime, particularly with a telescope or binoculars, because you stand a very severe chance of blinding yourself permanently. So the chances are that we will find it quite a difficult object to see at that time. But after it has rounded the sun, which it does very quickly, um, it will emerge into our skies in December and certainly if you get up early in the morning in early December there might be a bright comet with a long tail hanging on the horizon. 
We've also had another question, this time on Facebook, from Jane Madden, who wants to know how long it might take for a comet to be completely melted or evaporated away by being close to the sun. And will there ever come a time when actually all of the comets are completely spent and we're in a solar system with no comets? At the moment, um, we're actually seeing, almost on a daily basis, comets completely evaporating. Now, the SOHO satellite has an imager that allows you to see up to about 10 degrees or so from the sun. And about every other day, on average, a little tiny comet comes hurtling in towards the sun and then fades away to nothingness because the fierce environment of the sun completely evaporates them. Um, So, yep, comets can disappear. And if we look like at a, a comet like Comet Halley, which is one of the, the really well-known comets, it's been going round since 273 BC, I think, is, is the, the earliest apparition. So we've got a couple of thousand years' worth of observations, and it's still going strong. And roughly speaking, each trip round the sun, it loses a metre or two from its surface. Given that it's of order 10 kilometres across, you can have quite a few trips around the sun uh, before you lose the whole thing. But it is quite clear that some comets appear fairly regularly with a short period and you see them year after year and then suddenly they're not there anymore. And one comet did that in the the 19th century called Comet Biela and it had been seen for, for several years. People thought they knew the orbit. And the next time it came round, it was in two bits And then the next time it came round, there was a fantastic shower of shooting stars. And what seems to have happened is that comet had completely disintegrated into a myriad of fragments. And those fragments made up the shooting stars. And a lot of the the known showers of shooting stars originated in comets. Um, So we know that it's quite a common endpoint for a comet to fragment into a cloud of debris. Thank you very much, Jonathan. And we'll be coming back shortly to talk to Jonathan Franklin about the prospects for comets later this year. But first, this month has seen the Mars 2013 simulation underway in the desert in the northern Sahara. 23 nations were involved in this simulation, which was headed up by the Austrian Space Forum. The simulation consisted of a number of tests of equipment and protocols and instruments, most notably perhaps the UDA-X Mars spacesuit, which sounds very, very exciting. Now, the spacesuit itself was designed as a way to model and understand the real problems that would be encountered and the limitations that would be created by wearing a spacesuit on Mars. In particular, they're very interested in understanding the potential for contamination in planetary exploration, as well as the problems of coping with heat and low pressure etc. Now they already know that the suit itself can perform within a temperature range of minus 100 degrees C up to 35 degrees C but they now need to know how easy it is to walk on rocky terrain or perform certain tasks that you might need to do while wearing the suit. 
they wanted to test it in the harsh conditions of a Moroccan desert because that will allow the Austrian Space Forum to develop their advanced human-machine interface, which is a set of sensors and software that's designed to act as what they call a local virtual assistant to whoever happens to be manning the suit. That system would also interact with other essential components such as instruments or the rover itself that they happen to be using. So a really nice way to integrate all of your kit together. But testing the suit itself is just a small part of the simulation. It does also include experiments on a long-term medical monitoring system, various physiological and psychological tests. There's a new laser-based life detection system. And I really like this idea, a lightweight quad bike that uh, astronauts produce to get around the surface of Mars. All of the experiments are also run from Mission Control in Austria, but here's where there's a very clever twist. All the communication signals are delayed so that they're not just testing the kit, but they're also testing the problems that we're likely to have when actually communicating with the team who are on Mars, all of the delays involved in that. The project actually comes to a close at the end of this month, so we should hope to see their results very soon, and those results could then shape any future plans of manned missions out into the solar system. So how does this compare with the Apollo program? I mean, obviously we had spacesuits 40 years ago, and, and the moon is, if anything, a harsher environment. I think they have learnt from all of the previous missions that there are actually questions that we need to be asking that are slightly different. So obviously the the communication delays are far bigger when we're dealing with Mars, so that's something they need to factor into all of their protocols. If it's really hard to give somebody instructions, then we obviously need to make sure that the systems they take with them either have instructions involved or don't need instructions. So those sorts of things are the questions they're starting to ask. And they've obviously learnt quite a lot from what's come before. I just think it's a really positive move that this is a, a group of people, 23 nations, so not an insignificant group of people, who are looking very positively at the problems that we're going to encounter, rather than just saying getting to Mars is going to be hugely difficult and hugely expensive, let's do something else. We're also joined this month by Naked Astronomy old-timer Andrew Ponson. And to start with, we've had a question from Dave Morris, who wants to know, what is escape velocity and why can I climb away from the Earth? It's a very good point. We often talk about escape velocity, and and the way to think about it is this. I mean, suppose you want to get something away from the Earth so that it it never falls back, say a a cricket ball or something. One possibility for, for how to get it away from the Earth is to throw it upwards very, very hard. Now, you're going to have to throw it so hard that it leaves your hand at what we call the escape velocity. For for the Earth, that's about 17,000 miles an hour or so. And the reason that works is it's just going so fast that despite the the pull of the Earth's gravity trying to to get it back, uh, it's never going to be able to cancel out that speed uh, in the end. So the cricket ball really will, in that case, just carry on going. That calculation, by the way, does ignore air resistance, but we we tend to do that when, when we talk about these things. That's one way you could get this cricket ball up into space and make sure it never comes back. But it it's only one way. I mean, that, that assumes that you just throw it and then leave it to uh, to carry on 
about its own business. If you can find some way of applying a force all the way up, then there's absolutely no reason why you have to give it that speed to to start with. So, for instance, I mean, the the, the question asks about a ladder. And, of course, a a ladder is something that allows you to, to keep applying a force. So if you've got the cricket ball in your pocket, as you climb up this very, very long ladder, you keep applying an upward force all the way up. And so that means you don't have to give it all the energy to start with you're sort of giving it to it in small doses if you like and and in fact of course the same applies to rockets rockets don't sort of suddenly start out at the escape velocity they keep on accelerating they keep on having a force applied to them uh, all the way out hasn't this idea been co-opted into what looks like science fiction really but the idea of a space elevator the fact that we might actually be able to put some sort of cable that one end is in orbit and the other end is on the surface and then we can actually just pull things slowly up into space. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. You have to be a little bit careful about how, how you would construct one of these things because obviously if you're not careful, when, when you apply the, the force to pull things up, if you're sort of pulling the other end of the cable from space, you'll apply an equal and opposite force to yourself. So you'll end up falling in. <laughs> But the, the way that this is avoided is, is normally by having some sort of uh, a counterweight system. And, and indeed, that there's no need for anything that you're pulling up ever to achieve the escape velocity. The main problem with that idea, actually, is, is making a cable that's strong enough. And if we can get away with only applying a small force for a long time, like climbing up a ladder, then why do rockets use enormous amounts of fuel and, and they're, they're basically just a bomb in a tube? That's a very good question, actually. Of course, there's there's a lot of things to take into account when you're designing a rocket. You need to get it up in a a, a reasonable um, amount of time, and you need to uh, work out how much fuel you're you're going to use up doing that, and and how much fuel you're you're uh, you're going to have to take with you. But I I don't, off the top of my head, have a brilliant answer to that question. Jonathan, any ideas? Yeah, what space physicists are increasingly doing, of course, is using things like ion drives which do have an incredibly tiny force, but they can run for a long period. So for getting to remote objects, some of the asteroid missions and so on, they've used these ion drives, which don't have very much kick behind them, but they can keep going for a long, long, long time. And so using a slow acceleration, you can change your orbit quite substantially. But you've got to get the thing up into space first, and to do that, you need your rocket. I guess the unique problem you face when you're trying to get out of the Earth's gravitational field is that that gravitational field is always trying to pull you back. And the longer you take to get out of the Earth's gravity, the longer you've got to burn just to keep yourself up in the air. So you probably want to get yourself up and out as quickly as possible. And then you can use slower propulsion methods like ion drives once you're out in orbit. I think that's got to be right, hasn't it? That, that when you're first taking off, that's when the gravity is at its strongest. So you want to minimise the amount of time you spend in that strong gravitational field. And of course, to complicate things even further, the Earth has an atmosphere which screws up all your calculations unless you can get off above that atmosphere fairly quickly. Now, while we're talking about gravity, Andrew, we've had a question from Bastian Bargman who wants to know what is the speed at which gravitational influences propagate through space. So, for example, if the sun were to vanish, what would happen next? Ah, now, this is a really nice question because the answer is actually a little bit subtle. Now, if, if you take our best theory of gravity, which is Einstein's theory of general relativity, 
that theory of the, the way gravity works is what we call a causal theory. So that does mean that information can't propagate at faster than the speed of light. So uh, you would think, na naively, that sounds like I've sort of answered the question already. You think, OK, if the sun disappears, then it must take a while for the information that it's disappeared to reach us. And, and in fact, going at the speed of light, it would take eight minutes. So you might imagine that the answer to this question is it takes eight minutes before we notice that the sun has disappeared. And after eight minutes, then the Earth can fly off uh, into outer space. But actually, I don't think that is the correct answer. I think general relativity gives precisely no answer to this question. You, you actually cannot answer this question. And the reason is that general relativity has built into it at a very deep level an idea called energy momentum conservation. It's like a generalisation of the normal conservation of energy that, that we normally talk about. And it's just built into the theory at such a deep level that the idea of something suddenly disappearing like the, the sun, all that mass disappearing, according to E equals mc squared, which is, of course, part of Einstein's theory, that's equivalent to energy disappearing. So you, you can't do it. You, you can't make uh, mass or energy disappear in that way within this theory. It's simply illegal. So there is simply no way that you can get a sensible answer to this question within general relativity. So I think that's the answer. And what about events that, that cause sort of huge changes in energy that would therefore cause huge changes in mass. So I, I don't, I'm trying to think of a good example here, but there must be things like black hole collisions that, that cause huge changes that you'd expect to see gravitational changes as a result from. Can we work out how that might work? Y yes, you can. So so here's an example. Suppose I, I have two black holes and I fire one of the black holes at the other black hole at very close to the speed of light, and that's going to knock the black hole out the way or some, something like that so that very suddenly it goes from just sitting there quite quietly to uh, uh, be, being sort of flung out into to outer space. So that, that's sort of the closest you can get. And that's a perfectly legal uh, idea. You, you're allowed to set that up within general relativity and, and get answers to that. The, the, the thing that complicates it then, the thing that stops it from being a nice, clean answer that you might expect is, of course, suppose you're on a planet orbiting the, this black hole that's initially stationary. Well, actually, you see... It, in terms of the gravity you feel, you, you feel the gravitational effect of the incoming black hole that's going to knock your black hole out of uh, it, its current position. So it's not like even in that case, suddenly the black hole is moving away at the speed of light. Even in that case, uh, you're sort of saved that you actually have some warning that it's coming in. Uh, and so you, even in these very extreme situations, you, you'd never get quite as clear cut a, a situation as uh, this question is trying to get at, if you see what I mean. There are now quite a few missions that are hoping to look for gravitational waves. These are sort of changes in gravity that propagate throughout the universe. Do we not need to know how quickly gravity travels in order to know how to look for gravitational waves? Yes. So when, when you get to uh, something like gravitational waves, finally things do begin to get a bit clearer that, that this particular way in which the, the gravitational field manifests itself, it, we, a called a gravitational wave, does travel, according to Einstein's theory, at exactly the speed of light. The, the reason that doesn't answer the original question is that gravity itself, the gravitational field of something like the sun, is not composed of gravitational waves or, or just gravitational waves. It's um, a sort of different 
different bit of the gravitational field, if you like. So, so these things are separate. But when it comes to things where you can measure their speed, things like gravitational waves, we do expect those to be going at the speed of light. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. And while we've still got you, I wonder if you might have an opinion on this. There was a paper published in the journal Science this month that seems to have pinned down the source of cosmic rays. These are protons that are moving at incredibly high speeds. And the researchers now think that they are accelerated by shockwaves that emanate from supernovae explosions. And to find out more, I spoke to Dan Cleary. He's the deputy news editor for the journal Science. This is a 100-year-long mystery of where they come from. Uh, They're not really rays, as in a ray of light at all. They're particles, uh, mostly just protons, which is a part of every nucleus. And they come raining down on the Earth all the time. We don't notice them because the atmosphere stops them before they get down to us. They're coming all the time, and they come from all directions equally. And astronomers have been puzzled because they don't know where they're coming from. It just seems to be equal from all directions. The reason they don't appear to come from anywhere is because they're charged particles moving through space. So they get their path through space is twisted by magnetic fields. So you can't trace back the route it's taken to get here. So they could have come from anywhere. The other thing about them is they're very high energy. They're traveling almost at the speed of light. So they must have come from some violent event in the distant, in deep space. So astronomers learned about uh, a bit more about particle physics in recent decades and realized that these particles, if they have a sort of glancing collision with another proton in that's just floating around in space, it'll produce a gamma ray. Now, a gamma ray is a ray. It's a high-energy photon, and it'll... You know, the gamma rays will just go straight through space and it'll tell you where that event took place. So they have the advantage of not being bent by magnetic fields. They might be bent a bit by mass, but not by magnetic fields. Exactly. So if you found a place in space where a lot of these gamma rays are coming from, that's a good bet that this is a place where uh, cosmic rays are being accelerated and created. So they looked around in space for things that do that, that produce these gamma rays, and the prime candidate were supernova remnants. So these are the material that's left over from a star that's exploded at the end of its life. So it's a load of material that's just flying outwards in a big sphere from a dead star. Well, not a dead star, but an old star. And... um, Sure enough, there were gamma rays there, so that was the sign that it was producing cosmic rays. The problem was other things could also produce those cosmic rays. Electrons are also accelerated by a supernova remnant, so it could be electrons. So they had to find some way of distinguishing between the gamma rays that were coming from the electrons and the gamma rays that were coming from the protons. Along comes the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope, which was put up into orbit in 2008. And it is more discriminating. It can study the energy spectrum of the uh, gamma rays in much more detail. And this big team announced uh, this week in uh, Science magazine that they were able to distinguish between the uh, the electron gamma rays and the proton gamma rays. And sure enough, the proton ones were there. So they're saying that they've solved this mystery, that uh, supernova remnants are the source of at least some of the uh, cosmic rays that are raining down on us. So just by looking at the, the spectrum, now, now I guess we could compare this to looking at light, where... 
when we see a certain spectrum, we know that that light has been emitted by a certain compound. Yep. And we're now seeing the same sorts of things with cosmic rays, and that's giving us a clue as to where they're actually coming from. Oh, that's right, yeah. They produce the gamma rays by this very unusual process. When they make this collision and with a, a more stationary nucleus, they produce a particle called a pion, and pions don't last very long. They just, in almost in a fraction of a second, they split into two gamma rays. But because you go through this process of producing a pion first, you know your gamma rays have to have the energy of at least half a pion. So there's an energy cutoff in the spectrum of uh, gamma rays that are produced in this way. So they saw that cutoff, and so they can say that it was protons. That was Dan Cleary, the Deputy News Editor for the Journal Science. And you can hear more about that on the latest Naked Scientist podcast, available at thenakedscientist.com slash podcast. But Andrew, what do you think? I think it's great. Um, this this whole question of cosmic rays has been around for some time, and I think most people were fairly convinced they, they were something to do with uh, supernova remnants. But... but uh, as we were just hearing, in, until you've actually seen some, some kind of direct evidence, because it's so scrambled what you actually receive here on Earth, it's very hard to know whether that's right. And this is an incredibly clever technique, which, uh, as far as I can tell, is, is very convincing. Still leaves a few questions outstanding, though, doesn't it, as to sort of exactly how they're being accelerated. We assume it's this pressure wave, but we can't see that in action, so we just can't tell. That's right. I mean, the, the actual physics of the way they're accelerated is still very unclear. But of course, now now that we have got this tool with the Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope to, to study what's going on in, in a lot more detail than we've ever been able to, to, to do before, I think that'll be the next thing that people are looking at. And it's adding to an, an awful lot of exciting results coming from, from the Fermi Telescope, actually. I think it's uh, sort of one of the slightly less talked about successes of recent years. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for joining us again. It's been a little while, but hopefully we'll uh, have you answering listeners' questions again soon. Great. Speak to you soon. Shortly, we will go back to our guest, Jonathan Shanklin, to find out more about comet pan stars. But first, for a wider look at the night sky, I caught up with Dr. Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. Well, it's been a quite a few weeks, really, hasn't it? Um, I mean, we've just only in the last few days had the exceptionally rare instance of a, a large meteorite, or large-ish, I, I hesitate to use the word too large to be too alarmist, actually... Uh, coming very, very close to the Earth and uh, causing a bit of damage. That's uh, really very unusual. It really was quite an unusual week for us as well, because as well as the one that we knew was coming and that we were all looking out for, we then got a surprise over Russia. Well, that's right. I mean, this object, fortunately, it wasn't something of the scale of what we'd call an asteroid, although astronomers, much as we like definitions, I'm not sure there's a good threshold cut-off between asteroid and meteorite, in other words, between, uh, I don't know, pebble, rock, and something the size of a mountain, and yet, yet something larger. But nonetheless, it was big enough to do some damage. And this object came in completely unexpectedly over the Russian city of uh, Chelyabinsk in uh, the southern Urals, and did much more damage, really, than, than anything of this kind in, in many, many years. And the really unfortunate thing as well is that more than a thousand people were injured and that's that's exceptionally rare there's nothing really in the historical record to suggest that an event like that has happened in well for probably for thousands of years it seemed to come out of nowhere didn't it we didn't predict this one we were very much eyes to the sky looking for da14 which was the the bigger one that did a fly past very close and then this one seemed to come out of nowhere 
think the, the interesting thing about the Russian event is that you've got something which is rather small, 15, 20 meters across at most, coming probably from the direction of the sun and therefore very, very difficult to detect. If you know about much, well, much larger objects do more damage, but on the other hand, they, they have the inherent advantage that they can be seen further away. Uh, if, they can't, if they're on the night side of the Earth as well, then they're against a, a dark sky. The problem with something coming from the direction of the sun is that, at least with an optical telescope, you're just not going to see it. That's an example of why it's good to put a lot of effort into tracking these objects, to look for them for as long as possible before they pose a danger to the Earth, and that way you hopefully don't get caught out. But the problem with something rather small when you get down to the 10-meter or smaller level is it's really very difficult to detect these things in any circumstances because below a certain size, they're going to be very, very faint. And it's pretty hard to track millions and millions of objects of this type. I mean, I suppose we can just be grateful for the fact that events like this are very rare, that the, this, this one is being described as the biggest event since 1908, which indicates that on a century timescale that they don't happen that often as far as we can tell. Hollywood has conditioned me to expect this sort of impact to be very loud, leaving a long, dark trail across the sky and then a massive crater where it actually hits the Earth. But that didn't seem to be what happened. The the video footage that I saw, it was incredibly bright. What actually happened to it? Well, the the object seems to... I mean, there's a bit of speculation around this, I should say, because not much in the way of fragments have been found yet. There's there's some small pieces that look as though they may be connected, but I suspect they await further analysis. What seems to have happened is it came in and broke up in the Earth's atmosphere about sort of 30, 40 kilometers up, which is fairly low by the standards of incoming objects in space, actually, unless, unless they get what's called aerobraked and just literally fall down to the ground. And as it broke up, there was basically a sonic boom because it had been moving so quickly through the atmosphere for faster than the local speed of sound. A sort of shock wave that emanated from that. That's what smashed windows, and that's what injured people because of having seen the flash, they went out to have a look, and, of course, light travels vastly faster than sound, so the sound then caught up with them in the form of the shock wave. It looks as though some of the pieces were distributed over a reasonably large area, but apart from some very small fragments, I haven't seen any, any big chunks of rock yet, and so we don't really know exactly what this object was made of. There is a, quite a, an interesting picture of a big hole in an icy lake, but uh, so as I understand, some divers have been down to have a look to try and retrieve some fragments and haven't found anything yet. But I suppose given it's a fairly well-populated area, given the intense scientific interest in this, there's good reason to believe people will find quite a lot more. As we have already mentioned, there was also the flyby of 2012 DA14, which was obviously less spectacular. But what did we learn from that? Was it astronomically interesting? Well, DA14, again, is an example of a fairly recently discovered object, but fortunately discovered long before it. Well, it it didn't present a threat to the Earth, as it turned out anyway, but long before it even made its close flyby. So we had quite a lot of confidence that it wasn't going to be causing us any problems. It's another of these sort of, you know, 100-meter size, or in this case, I think about 45, 50-meter size objects that they're really numerous. Again, possibly as many as a million of of this kind of object are going around the inner solar system. So, and if it hit the Earth, it, it's not the sort of thing that would end life on Earth or even come close to that. But in the unlikely event that it hit a city, it, would, it could destroy that. So it's the sort of thing we have to keep an eye on. As it went past the Earth, not that much was known about it, other than that it was rotating, I think, over a period of about uh, a bit over 10, maybe 15 hours, because you can see a, uh, the way it flickers, basically. I, I'll 
flickers is an exaggeration when something does that every over 10 hours, but there's a, a change in the amount of light being reflected off it, so that gives an indication that it's uh, tumbling. Then as it's gone past the Earth, and I haven't seen the results from it yet, and I suspect it's too early to hear anything much, but there were, there were plans to use radars based on Earth to scan it to map it more closely. That's been done with quite a lot of asteroids, so you should probably see some in radar images of it fairly soon. Uh, so astronomers are really taking advantage of it coming past the Earth so closely to get high-resolution images that way. Regardless of these doomsaying predictions, it now seems that we have good scientific evidence that actually Earth was hit in the past, but not necessarily by a big lump of rock, actually by a massive gamma-ray burst. Tell me a bit more about that. Well, there's this intriguing discovery, uh, most of it was made last year actually by a Japanese astronomer, of high levels of carbon-14 and beryllium-10 in tree rings in the, at the end of the 8th century, so the year 774 and 775 to be specific. And the presence of these or an excess of these elements uh, suggests that there was some kind of radiation interaction with the Earth, that actually that's what creates the excess of them. And that's very odd. Now, you get things like solar flare events and so on that affect life on Earth somewhat, but they don't seem to be powerful enough to cause this. So uh, one group is speculating that what it might be is a nearby soft gamma-ray burst. Now, a gamma-ray burst is, is a burst of very, very intense radiation, and at the high end, they'd be lethal things. They're thought to be caused possibly by the collapse of stars into black holes, and you get a really a, a appalling amount of energy released, and if you're anywhere near that, you well, it's basically an extinction event. It wouldn't be any good at all. But their suggestion is that a relatively nearby, perhaps a few thousand light years away, you had two neutron stars, compact stellar remnants coming together, um, merging together, and in doing so, releasing a burst of radiation. And it might just be that this affected the Earth that year. Now, the other bit of corroborating evidence, which is very, very odd, is the indication in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle of a, a red crucifix seen in the sky after sunset. Now, that could be incredibly allegorical. It could just be a, a very, very vivid sunset. Who knows? But it is nonetheless quite intriguing. And, and personally, I find it absolutely fascinating that this event several thousand light years away had this, this tangible impact on the Earth. It, it doesn't seem to have caused any, any real harm to anything or led to any kind of major impact on life anyway. I mean, I guess if you have a higher radiation dose, it's not good for you, but it doesn't seem to do anything long-term in the way that a more dramatic event does. But it does, again, illustrate that life on Earth, sometimes we're not quite as well as protected from the wider universe as we like to think. Are we not normally protected by the atmosphere and by our magnetic field? Does that not usually stop these sorts of damaging rays getting to Earth? You're absolutely right that the atmosphere and the Earth's magnetic field are very, very good shields, but they can't protect us against everything. And, you know, whether it's a large rock coming in from space or a very, very powerful radiation effect, the shields only, only give it work up to a certain point. So very, very powerful effects um, or big rocks, frankly, we'll, we'll get through that. Now, we know that because we can see most visibly in the, in the record of geology on Earth, we can see an awful lot of impact craters on the, on the surface of the Earth. I think more than 200 have been identified. And given that the Earth is a world which is constantly being resurfaced, where we have erosion, where we have weather, and where we have continental drifts, so some of the, the records of these things are wiped completely or at least buried very, very deep, it does say that an awful lot of things hit the Earth over, over the history of the planet. You've uh, made the Earth sound remarkably vulnerable. <laughs> the funny thing is I don't worry about it that much um, <laughs> because the statistics are still quite good. You, know, you can go your entire life 
with almost no risk of being affected by one of these events. So there are more pressing things to worry about. That said, there's every argument for looking at ways that we can, first of all, track these objects and, and secondly, deal with them. Robert Massey from the RAS. Now, returning to this month's topic of comets, let's go back to Jonathan Franklin, director of the comet sections of the BAA and the SPA. Now, Jonathan, there are two comets that people have been talking about that might be spectacular this year, and people have even suggested they might be the comet of the century. I know that you don't like phrases like that. What are the prospects for this year? Right, we've got certainly two comets which look as if they're going to do quite well. One of them, that's this Pan-STARRS comet 2011L4, is already a naked eye object and it's still got about a month to go before it gets to perihelion in mid-March. It's going to emerge from perihelion probably sometime in the second week of March. Just clear this up for me because I'm, I'm not an astronomer. What do we mean by perihelion in this context? Perihelion is when the comet is closest to Helios, the Sun. So peri-close Helios, Sun. And that's one of the parameters that defines a comet's orbit. The distance that it gets from the Sun at its closest and the exact time that that occurs. So with this comet, that's happening in March. And usually, but not quite always, a comet is going to be brightest when it's at perihelion. It then depends whether it gets close to the Earth or not. It might come closer to us, in which case it could undergo another brightness surge. But this particular comet, it seems fairly clear, brightest just at perihelion, and then inching its way into our night sky. And what are we going to expect? Well, something round about third magnitude. That's not going to be outstandingly obvious, but it will have a tail and the tail could be between 6 and 10 degrees long. You will, however, need darkish skies to be able to see that. So it's no good if you're stuck in the centre of a town. You're going to have to go initially somewhere where there's a fairly clear horizon and where there isn't too much light pollution, because light pollution particularly drowns out comets because they're fuzzy. If I could jump in and play my naivety card again, when we are talking about magnitude, what do we mean by that? How bright is third magnitude? Right. The faintest thing that you can see with your own eyes in a reasonably dark sky is about sixth magnitude. The sun is minus 26, so incredibly bright. Full moon about minus 12. And Jupiter, which is in the evening sky at the moment, that's about minus 2. So the brightest of all the stars, Sirius minus 1. And then the stars of the plough, which is a fairly easily recognisable constellation, they're mostly second magnitude. But the faintest of the stars of the plough, that's third magnitude. So that gives you a bit of an idea of how bright it might seem. So this comet, yeah, it's going to be quite nice. And it should be reasonably easy to follow um, for about a month. So we've got from roughly mid-March to mid-April where it's going to be fairly obvious and fairly easy to find. So how are comets like this discovered? Um, this comet Pan-STARRS was discovered by an automated telescope in um, Hawaii that's busy scanning the skies, trying to find transient objects or moving objects. 
So detecting those near-Earth asteroids that come close to us and might even hit us, like 2012 DA14. But in the process of looking for the asteroids, it's picking up comets as well. And this was one of the comets that it's, it's found. It's actually found quite a large number of comets now. And it usually finds maybe one a month at uh, the present rate. And at the moment, they've only got one telescope running. When they're in full action, they hope to have four and cover the entire night sky um, down to really quite faint magnitudes every few days. So they really will pick up an enormous number of things. Once something like that has been discovered, how do we then go about making the predictions about how bright it's going to be and those sorts of things? How can we tell when we see something at a distance what it's going to do in six months, nine months, ten years' time? There's really two stages to this. The first thing is to determine its orbit. And to determine the orbit of a comet, you need very precise positions. And that's a mixture of these automated patrol systems plus increasingly a large number of amateur astronomers who quite often have access to robotic telescopes in nice cloud-free areas where you can guarantee to be able to image them. And all of these observations are then sent into the Minor Planet Centre in America where they use the precise positions to calculate the orbit of the comet, know exactly how close to the sun it's going to get, when it's going to get there, how the orbit is inclined to the Earth's orbit, and so on. Now, having discovered that, the next question is how bright it's going to get. This is where it gets a bit more complicated. To start with, they look at how bright it is at discovery and then do a simple extrapolation. Now, the problem there is not all comets brighten at the same rate. So if you assume a rate of brightening and get it wrong, then your prediction is going to be wildly out particularly as it might be a year or more away from getting close to the sun. And that's really what the case for the second of the two comets we're expecting this year, one called 2012 S1 ISON, after the observatory where it was discovered. That was discovered where it was still a long way from the sun. The magnitudes that were known for it were approximate because they were taken for positional measurements, not for total brightness. And then it's assume that it brightens at the average rate of all comets and you can put all that into the equations and come up with a figure that it's going to be as bright as the full moon when it's as close to the sun as it gets. Now the problem there is that that theory really applied when comets weren't being discovered a long way from the the sun. Um, They were discovered in the old days when comets were discovered by amateurs hunting visually either with the naked eye or with telescopes. So we were only looking over a small part of the comet's orbit. And on average, those comets brightened as to the inverse fourth law. So if you get so much closer to the sun, they get twice as bright, half the distance twice as bright. And on that basis, the initial predictions are made. Now, for comet pan-stars, it's really pretty much following a simple reflective law. So if you had a mirror there, that's roughly how the comet would would behave. So at the moment, that's why we're saying it's going to get about third magnitude based on the observations that have been made. Comet ISON, the November one, the December one, we don't have that range of data yet. So we have to assume its rate of brightening. 
And I go for a slightly um, slower rate of brightening, which is why I say it's going to get to minus 9 um, at its brightest rather than minus 12. But the error bars on any of those measurements are probably at least five magnitudes, if not more. So it could fizzle away to virtually nothing and become the flop of the century, or it could really go as to the, the optimistic predictions and become the comet of the century. But mind you, there's a lot of this century to go yet, and who knows what will be discovered in the future. The predictions for 2011 L4 Pan have certainly been downgraded quite a lot in the last couple of months, I think, only around Christmas, people were saying it might be as bright as Jupiter or even Venus. And now we're talking about third magnitude, which is among the faint stars of the night sky. Yes, it's quite interesting to see how comets evolve. So this particular comet, when it was came first into visual range, it seemed to be brightening quite rapidly. It then got too close to the sun in the sky. This is not physically close, but in our line of sight. An observation stopped for a couple of months, and it was picked up again in late December. And the first few observations coming in after that suggested it wasn't really brightening as rapidly as it had been previously. So the question then is, why? That's what all scientists ask. Why is something not doing as you expect? And it's probably a combination of quite a few things. First of all, it's what particular ices are coming off the comet. And if initially it was the highly volatile ices, the ones that really evaporate ever so easily, that could have been why it appeared to be brightening quite rapidly. And we're now going on to the harder to evaporate ices, and so they're coming off more slowly. Another possibility is that it's a seasonal effect. Now, a comet is a rotating icy lump, and just like the Earth has seasons with polar caps, so may the comet. And if its season progresses from summer, where it's evaporating quite rapidly, to winter, where the sun is low on the sky for this particular active area, then its activity will drop. And then finally, maybe it's using up all its material of ice in, on part of the surface, so the active area over the entire surface of the comet is reducing. At this stage, we have no idea which of those possible explanations is true. And it does put into question any of these predictions for the future. A lot of the time, a comet's light curve can only be determined retrospectively after the event, and you're hostage to fortune for predicting the future. Well, thank you very much. That was Jonathan Shanklin and before him, of course, Dominic Ford. And that's all we have for this month's Naked Astronomy. We will be back soon with more space science news and views. Many thanks to Jonathan Shanklin, to Robert Massey and to Andrew Ponson. Naked Astronomy is produced by Dominic Ford and by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists. And it's brought to you with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.